Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus. Hmm? You're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Hey, listeners, a little bit of homework for next week. We're going to be talking about that Netflix documentary on Amanda Knox, so watch that. We're also going to be talking about the conflicting and strong feelings that are still swirling around that case. If you are a person who has those feelings, we would love to hear your thoughts, whether you think Knox is definitely guilty, definitely innocent, or you're just confounded by anyone who feels differently than you do about the case. Send us an email or email us a voice memo. The address is crimewriterson at gmail.com. Who knows? We may even use your voice on the podcast. All right, let's start this week's show. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and of course, other podcasts. Today, we're going to discuss the latest podcast to tear up the charts. It's called Accused, and it was produced by two intrepid journalists at the Cincinnati Inquirer. We're also going to tackle some questions around crime stories and podcasting and take on a crime of the week that flips the script on wrongful arrests. So joining me now to get all of that done is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Good evening, Kevin. Becky, be ready for the second most anticipated debate of this week. <laughs> <laughs> and also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, newly minted podcast swearer, and licensed PI, <laughs> Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. I'll try not to let it rip too much tonight. <laughs> and also with us is our favorite negative Nelly on Skype video for a change, which is providing us with some pleasing visuals this evening. Crime and noir fiction writer Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Dobre Dean, Rebecca. <laughs> wow. Wow. That was... language. Wait, maybe we should just like Google translate it. <laughs> You'd have to spell it out in Cyrillic. Greek it's, or? it's Russian. I had to Russian? I had to oh. I had to use the low voice for the Russian. Ah, okay. <laughs> Very Boris Badenov of you. Well, I actually have something to talk to you about, Toby. And Kevin, you know how like sometimes you say things and I add echo to it? Yeah. Um I need you to say something new. I need you to say mystery solved. You need me to say that? Yeah. Okay, ready? Yeah. Mystery solved. All right, Toby. I have a mystery that's been solved for you. Are you ready? Okay. This message is for Toby. Toby, my name is Molly, and I'm a huge fan of the Crime Writers podcast. So you can only imagine my excitement when one of my Amazon items was on your list last week. But I'm afraid you had some confusion about it, and I wanted to call and clear it up. My item was the Bell Fantasy Bamboo Bra. 
And probably to your disappointment, the bra is not made of bamboo. The color is called bamboo. Now, bamboo is a little bit of a like shiny nude beige color. Really not that exciting. Anyway, I figured it was a little tiny mystery that maybe I could solve for the crime writers. Keep up the good work. I love you guys. So, Kevin, you want to say that again? <laughs> mystery solved. How do you feel, Toby? Do you feel pretty good that that mystery was finally solved? It, it feels more like somebody knows something. <laughs> In what way? I, I appreciate being enlightened, but uh, my anticipation of what was actually involved turned out to be more exciting than I guess what it actually the was. The journey was more important than the destination. That's very true in this case. Yeah. <laughs> Although, I'm a letdown. Yeah, I was actually hoping it was a bamboo bra. No, yeah. it was not a bamboo bra. And full disclosure, we do know Molly. She actually called me when she was listening to our podcast. Yeah. But once again, hundreds of items. It's twice and, in a row. And you read one. Yeah, with somebody we know. We know. You like socialize with her? Yeah, yeah she's like one yeah. of my BFFs. No, she seems very nice from that phone message. <laughs> <laughs> For someone who created like a totally boring outcome yeah. to the mystery. For someone that we yeah. all know now is a 32G. I would I would just suggest that or next time G, like, maybe you could suggest suggests that she uh you know it's like saying like how did you how'd you sprain your ankle well you know i i stepped on a curb you're supposed to be like well i was playing one-on-one -on -one with lebron james it's coming down off a tomahawk and <laughs> <stepped on> a <laughs> all right all right you're all supposed right. to say something about her bra like that so laura i understand that uh, toby's not the only one in pain this week uh you also are suffering what's going on with you I am suffering. So I signed up for this like eight week biggest loser challenge, kind of like the TV show. And today I went to a bar class thinking it might involve drinks, but alas, it did not. It was like ballet torture class. Oh my God, what um, a terrible bait and switch that would be. Terrible. I know. I, I was just like, seriously, I mean, who's going to the bar at 830 in the morning? Apparently I was not. So I did. I We had a little delay getting started tonight. So thankfully I had another glass of wine because I can't really walk across my house right now. It's kind of pathetic. I can barely walk across the house. Why is that? Because yesterday was my walk a mile in her shoes walkathon, where I walked a mile wearing high heel shoes to raise money for a crisis center here in central New Hampshire. And Kevin was featured on the front page of one of our state's largest newspapers, the Concord Monitor. By the way, Sarah Koenig used to write for the Concord Monitor. That's right. She left town and I made the front page. <laughs> and picture me putting on... My uh, fuchsia pumps yep. and my striped socks. And then I didn't realize it till later, but I look like the Wicked Witch of the East. Yeah. We all those... realized that immediately when we saw yeah. that photo. Why didn't you tell when, me? When I saw that photo, Kevin, all I could think of was it was like the witch lady who gets crushed by the house in the beginning, yeah, but kind of crossed with one of the munchkins. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It yeah, was like two I, I know costumes exactly. in one. I think basically she's saying that you've got like messed up proportions, Kevin, is what she's saying right now. <laughs> Which, by the way. You look like a witch fucked a munchkin. <laughs> <laughs> no, like the Thanks. socks. Just I looked, looked. I'm like, he's got hot pink shoes and striped socks. It just and you know. your body looks like a munchkin. Yeah, like a munchkin. <laughs> That's great. Hey, but we had. I don't, a lot I don't of... think we need to explain this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, what happens when I have to have an extra glass of wine. Hey, we had a lot of podcast listeners who donated, and I wanted to thank them uh, on the show. And guys, I was I wanted to send like personal emails to everybody, but when you sign up, the, the online thing like wouldn't give me their their emails, so I couldn't do this in person, so I hope this is just as good. I want to thank Judy, Sarah Webb, Melissa Hunnenfeldt, I hope I got that right, Scott, 
Jill Trujillo, Jessica McInern, Sherry Olson, Emiliano Diaz de Leon, and Steve Barman. What about uh, Rebecca Lavoie? I was going to thank you anyway. What about Anonymous? Someone named Anonymous gave two, you 100 bucks. That's right. We had two anonymous donors. So I wanted to thank you guys because it was a fun event, and um, you guys helped us out last year and this year, and we raised a lot of, not only a lot of money, but a lot of awareness because in this case, we're, we're targeting men. We're trying to get men to think about domestic violence in a new way and be part of the solution. All right, so now it's time to move on to another regular segment that we've implemented on the podcast that requires a little bit of vocal love from you, Kevin. True crime update. <laughs> All right, Laura Bricker, do you want to fill us in on what is going on in a case we've been following now for months and months and months, the Bo Bergdahl case? There was some big news there, right? Yeah, there was some big news there today, and it came out via Sarah Koenig and her serial team. We were waiting at the end of season two of Serial for information, you know, because it had been said, some people were saying that there was six soldiers in Bo's unit that died and that it was as a result of searching for Bo after he walked off. And they never were able to really get any concrete information at the end of season two. So after nearly a year of waiting, Sarah announced today that they did finally receive the Army internal investigation into the death of these six soldiers and that none of them actually died as a result of searching for Bo. Huh, that's interesting. Although there was somebody who was pretty badly hurt or a couple of people who yeah. were pretty yes, badly yeah, hurt. Yes, yeah, that's true. I do remember that. Yeah. Well, man, I think it's it's hard to take any sort of satisfaction if you're pulling for Bo, knowing that even though those six people died, it wasn't directly related to him. But it's such a complicated case, and there were people who were injured. You know, we'll just have to follow this court-martial because really, in the end, it's, it's just going to be about how much time is he going to serve? Well, I would say that if our listeners are interested in actually learning about this from someone who knows what they're talking about a little bit more than us, they should probably listen to Wyrick's new podcast, Military Justice. I know he just dropped an episode on what's going on with the Bergdahl case. That might be a good source of information to sort of follow up on this. I'm sure he'll be talking about this. Yeah, I would advise everybody to forget the last five minutes of what you said and listen to (laughs) Wyrick anyway. I was going to say, we need to channel Wyrick. He needs to like beam in when we have these questions. He does. He does. He, he just needs to sort of send a voice memo like uh, our friend Molly, the bra purchaser, did. You know, we could just have him with his super militaristic voice and a voice memo saying, give your Wyrick impression. I can't. <laughs> so this week, we're going to dive deep into the currently number one on iTunes surprise hit podcast, Accused by the Cincinnati Inquirer. The podcast looks at a cold case that isn't classified that way. It tells the story of the 1978 murder of Elizabeth Andes, the arrest and exoneration of her boyfriend for the crime, and the refusal of police to continue investigating the case. Now, if you haven't listened to Accused, shame on you. I told you to do it. <laughs> last week. What have you been doing? No, seriously, though, you should pause here and listen to that podcast. You won't mind that I asked you to do it, I promise. But if you know for some reason you're not going to listen to Accused, no worries. There will be plenty in this discussion around larger questions that this podcast tackles. So before we launch into our discussion about Accused, the podcast, let's spend 20 minutes or so hearing another discussion about Accused that's probably a little bit more informed than the one that we are about to have. Hey, I'm Amber Hunt. I'm a journalist who hosts the Accused podcast. And I'm Amanda Rossman, and I produced the Accused podcast. 
Amber, I'm wondering if you can just thumbnail sketch the case in the center of accused. Sure thing. Um, Elizabeth Andes was a Miami University student in Oxford, Ohio in December 1978. Um, She had just graduated and she was packing up her apartment, getting ready to move for her first big adult job in in Cincinnati. Uh, Her boyfriend showed up to help her pack and found her dead on her bedroom floor. He, because he was the one to find her, he obviously was zeroed in on immediately as a suspect. And he was brought in for questioning within 30 minutes. 15 hours later, he confessed. And then he was tried three months after her death and was acquitted, largely because the details of his confession didn't match the crime scene. So after that acquittal and then a subsequent win in civil court, he still was viewed as the suspect. And so what Amanda and I did is look at the case to reinvestigate, to see if there were other avenues that could have been explored. And you have been working on this for nearly a year, correct? It has now officially been a year, yeah. All right. So your background, Amber, is a print reporter. Amanda, what is your role in the podcast and how did you end up teaming up with Amber to work on this? Normally, I'm I'm a photojournalist and multimedia producer, so I've done a lot of video over the years. And I started working with Amber on this project shortly after she began. And we knew we needed to team up that a reporter and a photographer should be together from this since the beginning. Um, It was important to capture the right audio, to capture video if we were going to go that avenue. We didn't necessarily know this was going to be a podcast in the beginning. But that's the way it turned out that, you know, the voices were so rich. The story just kept getting deeper and deeper. So I helped. I took all the sound bites. I put everything together. I helped Amber do a lot of the deep digging. I was along for most of the in-person interviews. Plus, she just researched the hell out yeah, of it with yeah. me. <laughs> no, you, guys, you guys are a true team on this. I mean, I've noticed the Twitter handle for Accused Podcast is Amber and Amanda. I mean, you guys yeah. really truly a team. And I'm just curious, you you know work for the Cincinnati Inquirer and you have, I'm assuming, both worked on a variety of print and multimedia online projects. What was the pitch meeting like to your editor when you said you wanted to do this story as a podcast instead of just as a long form online or print story? This was actually a slow evolution. It began where we were talking about a traditional story and then thought, well, maybe it's actually a series because it's really complicated. And maybe as part of the series, we could do these little podcasts on the side um, just to reach a different kind of audience. And then it became clear that if if we had stories come out with the podcast, they would have been repetitive and we didn't want to do that. And so we were thinking, okay, we'll just do this a little differently. We're going to do the podcast first and then we'll do a print story after. And so it, it was a very much a slow thing. And luckily, we we had a change in leadership here just before we started this project. I don't think this would have gotten done the way it did two or three years ago. So everything just sort of lined up. Right. Now, Amanda, I want you to answer this question. Let's just pretend that Amber is not in the room right now. <laughs> um, so one of the things I love, love about Accused is that while Amber does do the disclaimer at the beginning that I'm a print journalist. I've been a crime reporter for many years. I'm not accustomed to being in the story and using the first person in the narrative. Mm -hmm. That's it. There's no other 
I'm sorry, I'm not a radio person. I am, you know, she, she's not self-deprecating. She's just very confident in her delivery. And in my ears, having worked in radio and public radio for a long time, she's really a natural delivering the narrative with her voice and her just her way of delivering it. And I'm wondering, did you see that evolution or was it just the moment she started doing the narrative? You just knew like she's good at this. From the beginning, I knew she was good at this. As much as she'll tell you that there are people who probably hate her voice, I don't believe it because she is very good at this. But it did still take some coaching as far as needing her to slow down, tell the story, you know, so people really could sink their teeth into what she was saying. And it's a little bit different when you're telling things and you need it to be more conversational so people get into it rather than how she would write a story. But she's very good at it. So my question for you, Amber, we did get this question from one of my listeners. I solicited some questions for you guys. And also, this is something that I think you've addressed before. But, you know, if you think about the really successful true crime reported podcast, I think about yours. I think about Madeline Barron and In the Dark and, of course, Sarah Koenig and Serial and um, some of the other Sarah Koenig projects she's done on This American Life. There is, I think, a open, somewhat self-effacing sense of like you when you say you know what's going on and when you don't. But then there's also this non-confrontational, self-deprecating style of questioning that I think listeners perceive more so than is actually there. And I'm wondering how you think gender kind of plays into how you feel we perceive women reporters doing their work on the radio and how much do you feel constrained by the constraints that actually do exist for female journalists when they're questioning people on the record on tape and how you know that's going to play for an audience i wasn't thinking about it then i never think about it for print um so some of the responses have been a little surprising to me just because i i don't think about that i mean a journalist is supposed to ask tough questions. That's what we're trained to do. Uh, So when I ask one and I get told I'm too aggressive, I'm like, did you see the job description? Because I'm I'm supposed to be pretty. (laughs) And and in fact, I mean, you know, there are a lot of conversations that we obviously didn't include. And and some of them are me saying, I'm going to walk you through this. I'm a little tougher, obviously, on elected officials. You know, so when I'm talking to Beth's friend to say, if there's ever a point you need me to stop so that I can explain how this is going to work. Uh, let me know. I don't want you to be surprised. And and the audience doesn't know that I sent them 15 million emails right. saying, okay, this is where we are. This is what's happening. Do you have any questions? Can I allay any concerns? But I don't feel the need to do that with elected officials because it's their job to answer to reporters. So I admit I was a little surprised that some people seem to be like, oh, poor prosecutor. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> poor prosecutor and, and poor great. buzz. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, well, and he, you know, for me, I don't know why he was reluctant to talk. So I tried to be transparent on that, too. It could be that somewhere along his histories, some jerk reporter was really aggressive and nasty. And so that could be the place that he's coming from. Mm-hmm. I don't pretend to know why. I just know that I'm curious and I'm, I would love to figure it out. Now, one of the most compelling things I think about the story that you endeavor to tell is that you make no bones about it. Like you would love this case to be solved. And you say that right up front. And I think that that is bold. And I think it's fair for someone who's done a year's worth of reporting to say Uh that that's the goal. I mean, you're not just setting out as an amateur with your tape recorder knocking on doors like you you know what you're doing and you've got a lot to back it up. You do have four alternative suspects besides Bob that have been 
at some point looked at. And you talked to three of them. One of them, obviously, is, has passed away. I don't know at what point in the process you did these three conversations. You spoke to RJ, is it Valella? Mm-hmm. The high school friend of Beth's, the victims. Buzz Call, who was Beth's boss. This is the guy we were just talking about who was very confrontational with you on the phone on one of my favorite moments of the podcast when he asked about your tone and you said, your tone has been the same with me this whole time. Hostile. And uh, Steve Green, the maintenance man who may or may not have left the door open of Beth's apartment. And then obviously the fourth deceased, Boyd Glasscock. So you spoke to three three of these four men during your reporting, did you have points in the podcast where you thought to yourself, I could be talking to the killer in this case right now? Yes. <laughs> Next question. No, <laughs> uh, no, for sure. And But part of it was I, I didn't call any one of them thinking that that was the case. I called looking for tidbits. Like when I learned that the boss had spent a couple hours with her the night before she died, my main interest, and this was an early phone call, my main interest was finding out what her mindset was that night before. And I mean, it's her last night alive. Was she scared? Was there any red flag? Were you over there because she asked you for protection? Really, I was calling all of these sources to try and gather information. And then the way they responded, when somebody's not being honest with you and you can sense it, um, you do wonder why. Right. Yeah. That conversation was interesting. But also, you know, I think that if you're going to listen to this podcast, I think it's worth taking the time to read the print version of the story, which is online. I'm going to post a link to it on my website so that listeners can easily find it. But there was one detail in the print story that I don't think was in the podcast. Buzz Call, who was Beth's manager at the deli where she worked, he claimed that he had spent a couple of hours with her in her apartment the night before she was killed. And then he also claimed that she had then come to his house to make a collect phone call. So he is, you know, kind of inserting himself into the story and in sort of the post-DNA world, you sort of think like, oh, was he trying to explain away in advance that he was in her apartment and that something of hers might be in his? But of course, this is all pre-DNA, so it doesn't quite jive that way, maybe. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But um, one of the details in the print story was that she had access to another phone that she, in fact, did use right before she was murdered and left a note and some money for long-distance charges. So there actually was a phone that she frequently used to make other phone calls. Is that, am I getting that right? You are, and, and mm-hmm. you're correct that that wasn't really in the podcast because that source reached out to us after the podcast started. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things we're doing is we, you know, I did two interviews yesterday from people that the podcast managed to reach, and I had been trying to reach one of them for a year. And finally, he reached out to me because he heard I was working on this story. So, yeah, that's a detail that I found interesting. What it means, I'm not sure. I mean, it could... Beth, the the day that she died, had complained to apartment management that when she came home from Christmas break, her door was unlocked. So I don't know if she was unsettled by this and maybe changed some of her usual habits. Maybe she wanted somebody around. Maybe she didn't want to use a phone that was in an empty house at close to midnight. It's possible, but it's also interesting because supposedly she was very comfortable there. Right. Now, Amanda, you sat in on uh, many of the interviews that we heard on the podcast. One of the things that really struck me was how Beth's friends from decades ago still feel and sound extremely close to her and extremely close to this case and very affected by this case as if it happened much more recently. Did that surprise you? I don't think it surprised me too much just because of the friendships that they had. And I 
put myself in their shoes and think about if my best friend was killed, you know, I think I would hold on to all of those memories. And I think I would be mad like them. I think I would be sad. I think, I think it's hard not to feel those feelings and hold on for so many years. And even Sue, you hear it in Sue's voice about how she still struggles today. The one big quote, she says, I should have fought for her. Maybe I should have fought for her. And you think about that and you're like, well, what would I have done in that position? You know, people are telling you it's the boyfriend. And if you're friends with the boyfriend, how do you make sense of all of it? Mm -hmm. And I think for years, that's what they tried to do. And it didn't work well for them. Now, Amber, Kevin and I have both written some true crime books and you've written some true crime books. And you know that in these very long term projects, you know, there's a lot of just like reading and looking at things and, you know, reading police reports and talking to people. And then there are moments where you turn a page or you discover something and we call them oh shit moments because you're like, oh shit. Were there those moments in this reporting project? And can you point to what a couple of those were that maybe we then did end up hearing on the podcast or even haven't heard yet? Yeah, definitely. We had several of them. One was courtesy of Amanda when we were trying to examine the crime scene photos and we noticed there had been mention of watching a movie on television. And then we realized that according to the photos, the TV was in the bedroom. And so that was a moment for us because, okay, so would Beth have had somebody who wasn't her boyfriend over in her place watching TV in her bedroom? In her bedroom. Um, Yeah. Yeah. For two and a half hours. So that was one of those moments where we're just like, so much of it revolves around us going, really? Police didn't follow up on this? (laughs) Just, I mean, right down to Bob Young made a phone call from a neighbor's apartment to alert police to him finding the, his girlfriend killed. And they didn't get written statements from the people in that apartment for a week. Right. Just things like that. We're like, really, really? And then finding Steve Green too. So police have said that they weren't able to locate him. And then he's actually 20 minutes down the road. So we're like, really? (laughs) It really is something. This is something that we've encountered, especially in our our most recent book with a witness that is ostensibly off the grid or off the map. And if you Google somebody and look up six listings and cross-reference them, you can find patterns in 10 minutes that help you find that person. And it it is sometimes astounding to realize that, you know, sitting in my kitchen I'm able to do something in 15 minutes that uh, seems confounding for years, right? right? Speaking of confounding for years, I do want to talk about the prosecutor. (laughs) There is a very memorable scene in your podcast where you are literally chasing him through a building and he's really obviously trying to get away from you and pretending as if he doesn't know you've been trying to get in touch with him for months (laughs) and months and months. This is a public official and you do disclose that he has somewhat of a beef with your publication potentially. Right. But are you tempted just to write a story about how this guy won't talk to you? I mean, I know that you may not think of that as news typically, but are you tempted to do just sort of more of a look at that? Like the fact that this person who is being paid by the public refuses to speak or respond to constitutionally appropriate requests for information by a reporter for the public. You know, I am actually angry enough about this that I would need to talk to my editor about whether it's appropriate for me to be the one to write the story. Right. You know, because we journalists, mm-hmm. we're supposed to separate ourselves when we're in, involved. And I am angry. I'm angry because I've done this. You know, I've been a, a journalist for 20 years. 
I have, of course, dealt with plenty of people who don't want to talk to me, but I have never dealt with one who refused to just give me the courtesy of a reply call when he's an elected official or have a subordinate call me and say, you know, you might as well quit hanging out <laughs> in my office because I can't comment on this or I won't comment on this. But this this was just a complete stonewall that I've never experienced before. I have never heard a public official even refuse to say no comment when offered the opportunity to say no comment. Right. Yeah. Was that just like a, a thumbing at the, of the nose in a way? I mean, is that, is that how it felt to you? Yes. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, because there are a million lines that you can use. You hear them all the time. I I can't discuss it. It's an open investigation. Of course, I would have pushed back on that because, you know, it had been in inactive files before we got involved. But still, there are lines that you use that make sense in terms of protecting an investigation. But he refused to even acknowledge that we existed, which is very strange because we are the go-betweens with the public and elected officials. That's our job to represent people to the folks that they elect. So, Well, one of the things that's interesting is I think very often when prosecutors don't want to talk, when they don't want to comment, and I think one case in which this really is, I think, very publicly prominent is the um, Heyman Lee murder, you know, the Adnan Syed case. The prosecution in that case can very fairly, I'm not saying this is unfair, I'm saying it's common and it's fair, they can rely on their relationship with the victim's family to not comment. They can say, right. in in respect for the victim's family, we are working with the family, we are talking to the family, and we've decided we're not going to comment. You know, And that is something that they can sort of lean on to justify lack of transparency. Mm-hmm. You are in the unusual circumstance where it is the victim's family, through their attorney, that brought you this story, Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have, I think, a point of view that is singular to your podcast in so far as there's a wrongfully accused person who was acquitted. The victim's family no longer believes in his guilt, even though they have some residual anger, which is, you know, understandable from their point of view, I think. But there's no sense here that you are advocating for one side. You are looking at everything. And the fact that you have the victim's family somewhat in the corner of looking for the same truth that you're looking for. What has that been like? I mean, you've been a crime reporter for a long time. Is this the first time you've ever been in this particular situation? It is, because when you're looking at a case like this, a lot of times it is the serial scenario or making a murder. You've got somebody behind bars. And I completely understand it. The prosecution's already done their case. They, They don't need to dredge this up. The person that they think did it is behind bars. So in this situation, nobody's behind bars. What harm can come from having fresh eyes on it? So somebody comes in after you and takes a look, and, and if, if you're right, then they just say, well, geez, this is one of those situations where the jury got it wrong. But if you're not right, then that means that a killer walked free and you didn't look for him. I mean, I get that there's ego involved, but this isn't – I was flabbergasted that, that we were stonewalled. If it had been a case from a year ago, I would have gotten it. Right. Um, but this has been dormant for so long. I mean, what harm can come at this point when the family wants it looked at, when her friends want it looked at, and when there's nobody in prison for it? I can't hurt the case at this point. I've got one minor question for you. The investigator who brought the case to the VDOC Society, which I know a little bit about because I've produced a story about them previously. This is the group of elite investigators that get together over a meal and pour over cold cases and come up with a new look at them that potentially can help investigators take a new tack on it. 
You interviewed one guy from that VDOC group who was particularly sexist toward you. Like, what was up with that? Like, where did that come from? <laughs> that was such a strange, and I suppose that was a, a different kind of oh shit moment because um, I was talking to him, and, and to, to be honest, I wasn't even recording him at the beginning because he was saying heady things that I didn't know. It wasn't really translating. I, I just wasn't sure that I was going to end up using them. The gist was that the police, they bring forward a presentation to VDOC. And so I was asking like, okay, this is coming from a perspective though. It's not as though you've got a thousand pages and you're sifting through with open eyes. You're hearing it from a vantage point. Mm -hmm. So is it possible that there are still avenues that you haven't considered because police didn't bring them to you. And I was actually kind because the first thing he said was silly girl. <laughs> and which, um, by the way, you repeated on your podcast, which I thought was awesome. Well, no, he said uh, the one I repeated was silly woman. Oh, I gave him the, oh, okay. he, he, he sounded as though he corrected himself <laughs> that I wasn't a silly girl. I'm a silly woman. So I was, I was kinder. And then I hit record. So I was like, what is happening here? <laughs> and it was very, for me, it was really indicative of some of the pushback we were getting elsewhere. Maybe they weren't being as overt or articulating it the same way, but the feeling was the same. So that's why it felt important to me because we got a lot of that kind of pushback. Well, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to ask you, H2, I hope not go more, more on a limb than you're comfortable with. But one of the things that you say in the podcast, Amber, is that, you know, you want to solve the case, but you don't have arrest authority. You know, you can only provide information that might guide law enforcement to a resolution. First to you, Amanda, and then to you, Amber, if you don't mind. I just want to know if you think Beth's killer is still alive. And if so, do you think there could potentially be a resolution to this case? I think there could be a resolution to this case if police are actively talking to the right people. I don't know if I can say one way or another if this person is alive, mm -hmm. because I feel like police could do a little bit more than what we've done. Mm -hmm. I would like the people that we've talked to to be interviewed, and they could be doing that now. I mean, they've kind of, I hate to say that they've cut ties, but we're hoping that they'll at least follow back at some point and say, well, you know, we did what we could at least, and or at least talk to the family, because I, I know the family is, they've been told that they're working, so at least they can get some answers, too. I don't know if I'm comfortable saying the person is alive or dead. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't do that, only because I, I like I actually want this to be solved. And so if, if it ends up going into court, I don't want anything I say to screw anything up. But this has been such a unique position, because the family basically has given up all hope. So... I know that I can go to sleep at night having done the best job I can do. I made it so that Beth's name is known. I found people that police said they couldn't find. I know that we've helped. I, I just I just hope like hell that they're they're doing their part to follow up. If I had, you know, subpoena powers and search warrants and stuff like that, there would be a lot of addresses that I'd be hidden, but I don't right. have that power. <laughs> and if you had the magic powers to find that box of evidence, right? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Amanda Rossman and Amber Hunt, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me. This has been really, really interesting. And I think your podcast is just fantastic. Well, we've yeah. really loved being embraced by the community. That's yeah. just been phenomenal. And so thank you very much for being so supportive. Thanks so much again to Amber Hunt and Amanda Rossman, the reporter and producer behind Accused from the Cincinnati Inquirer. Now, Kevin, you have listened to Accused. Yeah. Now that you've heard my interview with Amanda and Amber, 
What are your impressions of these two women? I I like their spunk. Totally. You know, the gumption to see that this was a story that they could really dig down deep into and look at it in a new way. Like digging down deep and looking at your hair in a new way without all that gray <laughs> that's usually there. Wow, that was quick. Yeah, which is why Isalon offers professional-grade, completely personalized hair color created just for you, Rebecca. Yeah, just for me. That's why I don't have any grays right now. That's right. You WTH, got... Kevin. <laughs> well, you got delivered right to your door, a little box that said Rebecca on it, and it was your color, your tint, picked from over 15,000 different colors with the help of your own personal stylist. Yes, Keith. Keith. Who I spoke to on the phone. Ooh. Yeah, Keith, I want to thank you very much, Keith. <laughs> My wife no longer looks like the... I gotta come up with a good one. The Wicked Witch of the East. (laughs) (laughs) We never get to see her. Wizard of Oz theme. So when you have questions, all you have to do is you go to eSalon. You maybe send a photo and talk a little bit about what you like, and they'll try to hook you up. And they'll send you a kit that has everything you need, including stain remover. That's true. Because sometimes you make a little mistake. You got you know stuff around the, uh, the the bathroom. It also works on your face, by the way, which I discovered. on your face, right. (laughs) The one reason a lot of people don't want to color at home because they think of the mess. Not that bad a problem. Unless, of course, you're Rebecca, because it's like sticking a mop in a giant bucket of paint and then flipping it over your shoulder. Pretty much, yeah. But the results are great. You have a color that won't fade, and same thing you can get from a a salon. You go to eSalon. So if you visit eSalon.com slash crime right now, new customers will receive 50% off of their first box. That's just $20 for your professional, personalized hair color. Get 50% off your first box at eSalon.com slash crime now. That's eSalon.com slash crime. No appointment necessary. See what I did there? You look great. Well, thanks. Isalon turned you back into... The brunette vixen that I used to be. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I'm glad you filled in the blank and not me. All right. So, Laura, we just came out of the interview and I asked Kevin a question. and He went immediately into that ad, which honestly, now that I'm no longer on my deathbed and we haven't planned this in advance, I wasn't expecting that. What do you think of that rapid transition into the ad? And what do you think about the way that Kevin delivered it? I was not expecting it either. I was sitting here thinking, now, what am I going to say when Kevin's done talking? And all of a sudden he went into an ad. So it was pretty smooth, Kevin. I mean, at this point, it's like he's just a pro. At this point, he's basically smooth and shiny like Rebecca's hair. (laughs) (laughs) That's eSalon.com slash crime. crime. Basically, he's competing against himself at this point, I think is what we've come to, right? Yeah, I'm like LeBron like that. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, I thought it was good. I just sort of thought, wow, Kevin just called these two young women spunky. And then suddenly we're in the ad. Yeah, I was too. I was actually thinking like nobody would call two guy journalists spunky. But I think that you were just saying that as a transition into the ad, right? I'm going to forgive you. Are you that. are you apologizing for me? I am. I'm what, a Kevin apologist. What, what did the uh, the guy call? Uh, a little woman. A, you little coquettish <laughs> little woman. He called her a little yeah, girl. Yeah, he called her, he called her a little girl. Little the first girl. Time. Yeah. Silly little girl. Silly little girl. <laughs> if I could answer seriously, I give them a lot of credit and I kind of look up to them. I do think that, okay, maybe spunky isn't the right word, but they showed a lot of gumption. Is that a better word? Like it's adorable. Old, it's adorable. But How about he, saying they have balls? How about How that? About relentless. Okay, here's what I was They had vision. Right. That I think that if you are working at a newspaper, and Laura, you know, you don't have to speak directly to your employer, but 
I would imagine that when you go to a, a newspaper editor and say, I have this idea for this story to now be a podcast, that that would just seem like completely out of left field, right? Yeah. I mean, what this has kind of got me thinking about is I just feel like we're kind of witnessing a little bit maybe the evolution of journalism as print newspapers are having a harder and harder time. There seem to be more newspapers that are freeing reporters up to do projects like this, which I think is awesome. But I'm just amazed because I think it's probably a really hard sell. You know, staff numbers are getting lower and lower at all the newspapers I know. And for them to give Amber and Amanda a year to work on this, it's pretty amazing. Now, Laura, did you find this podcast as addicting as I found it? I did. So it started off a little slow and I was listening to it. And, you know, I'm one of those people like some people can listen to a podcast at any time. I have to either be in my car or somewhere where I'm not distracted. But once I got onto the episode where she started talking about the three other mm-hmm. people that should have been questioned, I just like plunked myself down on the couch for like two hours and couldn't stop listening because I needed to listen to the next episodes. Mm -hmm. Toby, one of the things that struck me listening to this podcast and being like so hooked on this podcast was that we're talking about a 37-year-old murder case, right? We're talking about somebody who lives not close to us, who would be a lot older than us, were she alive. And there is this idea that like when you tell a story like this, and I think this is the hardest part of any story, you have to make your audience care about the case and about the person they're talking about. Do you think it was successful the way they laid it out? And if so, why do you think it worked? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it did seem to me more like reading a detective novel than some of the other stuff we've looked at where there's been particularly somebody who's in jail who might be who might be innocent. So there was none of that. I mean, it's really, you know, there is a, a person who's guilty walking around because they never got anybody for it, right? I, I think it came more down to sort of the you know, the circumstances behind her death and the fact that there were a bunch of different people who you could conceivably point the finger at. And then the fact that the police just, again, did sort of, at least in hindsight, a fairly inadequate job of investigating. If there was any criticism, and I I really liked it, I thought it was really well done. I think that you've kind of hit upon it is that there wasn't that kind of immediacy that, you know, having a guy who's like sitting in jail like Adnan, that kind of lent a little more, um, urgency. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. That's the right word. Uh, a sense of urgency that this didn't have. But it, I, I thought it overcame that problem really effectively through good reporting and, you know, I think even better storytelling. What do you think, Kevin? Did you find the podcast addictive? And, and how do you think that she dealt with the almost 40-year-old case and making us care about it? I didn't really get into it until about the third episode, which is not surprising because I, I didn't think the first episode of Serial Season 1 was the strongest. I had to drag you kicking and screaming into really getting into Serial, if you remember correctly. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. and you know, we, and we have been seeing people tweet at us for weeks about accused. And for full disclosure, when people tweet at us relentlessly about something, we are a little bit bratty about it. Like, ugh. Oh, they're saying we got to do this Ugh. thing. Yeah. No, and by the way, I don't want to say our listeners shouldn't suggest things. That is not your problem. That it's, is yeah. our problem. Well, no, it's, it's like, you know, there's tweeting four or five different things. Well, and it was, yes. And to be you know. fair, a lot of things do get tweeted at us that we sort of try and don't mm-hmm. like. And then we just feel like we want to be polite. Yes. And we don't want to be like, yeah, we're not going to talk about that because we hate it. Yeah. So, yeah. So this was definitely sent to us a whole bunch. And then I started listening and I was like, you need to listen to this. Yeah. So at first it felt like an assignment because I knew we were going to talk about it, but then I really liked it. You know, this was the most transparent 
on the investigative side and the news gathering side more so than serial. We love Bill Rankin's podcast breakdown, right? right? But that podcast doesn't pretend to be a podcast first. Like it doesn't. He's just like, I'm a newspaper reporter and I'm just talking into a microphone and Uh telling you what I want to tell you. The thing when you talk about transparency, the difference to me between this and like a radio produced podcast is that typically in a radio produced podcast, you would hear a lot of setup into a soundbite and then you would hear the soundbite and then you would hear setup out of the soundbite. So like in Syria, you hear Sarah Koenig tell you what you're about to hear, give you context. Then you hear sort of the heart of the thing. And then out of it, she talks some more, gives her analysis of it. This, we heard more of the sound, but it mm-hmm. wasn't boring. Like hearing the sound was actually well, part of the story. Well, right. I mean, when you go to a, a restaurant, what you want to do is you want to sit down and you want to eat the meal. You don't want to see a lot of the chef cooking up the dish. Some people might find that interesting. Here's a way where they make it really interesting. And and I found it very interesting because, you know, I was a reporter and I recognized a lot of myself and my delivery and my way of dealing with people that I'm interviewing. It's just like Amber. I mean, I really felt like we were kindred spirits in the way we would deal with people and, and the way we would try to get people to talk and to keep them going and sort of the I'm really trying to bite my lip when you're being a dick to me you know, those interviews. Toby, what about the interactions we hear Amber having with her subjects? You know, in particular, her conversations with law enforcement experts, with Buzz Call. Do you like hearing those reporter subject conversations laid out as that and not as a series of sound bites with talk arounds in and out of them? How did you feel about that part of the podcast? Well, I think it, you know, we were talking about tension and I think that really added to it. I think especially hearing the way it's particularly older men spoke to her and the way she kind of handled that and the way she kind of handled asking questions that I think she anticipated that the subject would find objectionable or difficult to answer. She had sort of this disarming laugh that she would use sometimes, which I think would kind of break the tension a little bit between her and the other person. But I do think I don't know if it would work this well with everybody, but you did get a sense of what she was up against in investigating this. I actually thought those parts of the podcast were really interesting. We got to hear it. This is a seasoned, experienced crime reporter, and I don't think she's coquettish at all. And when the guys used that word, like I was really shocked because she seems comes across as very straight to me. Like she's just doing her job and she's doing her due diligence and the shoe leather stuff that reporters do. And we got to experience, it feels like firsthand when you're listening to a podcast, I'm going to call it firsthand, we got to experience firsthand that there is a discrimination, sort of like being talked down to, that is clearly gender-based. This was not where you're like, well, maybe it's because I'm a woman. No, he called her a little woman. Like, he used those words. Laura, what did you think of that part of the podcast, and what did you think about those conversations that we heard? Yeah, I mean, I definitely noticed that, and, I, and I've been in that situation. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you start to feel like after a certain point as a reporter when you've been doing this for a long time you feel like you maybe should have earned some respect but it's still you know I still have people talk to me like I'm 10 years old when I go out to do interviews but more from a storytelling standpoint to me it made her almost more of sort of like a mystery protagonist in this story mm-hmm. we're kind of going along with her struggles and kind of following along as she's investigating play by play, like she's up in the middle of the night thinking about it. She's doing an interview with her child crying in the background. She's trying to find 
where the DA is going to be so she can pounce upon him and hopefully get some sort of comment. But we're following along with her. You know, much likely we would be following along with a mystery sleuth. And that's sort of how I was listening to it. Right. I agree with you. And to me, that's why I felt that it was addictive, because she was the central figure in the story. And she discloses that at the beginning. And that actually brings me to my next question, Laura. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. We've talked a lot on other podcasts about the central question and how it's important to have a central question. I think we talked about that a lot with someone knows something. You know, what is the central question? You know, what happened to Adrian? Well, did the podcast get us there? We don't know. Her central question here, she lays it out at the beginning. She wants to solve the case, whether it's her or the police, like she wants the case solved. Do you think that was a ballsy central question to sort of lay out at the beginning and just tell listeners right away, like, that's my goal here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, I want to go back over the case and see and talk about it. No, it was like, I'm going to solve this case. And then, you know, listening to her, she was really on that path quite doggedly throughout this podcast. So I liked that again, but it's it's more like a traditional mystery. Like we're going to set out to solve the murder and this is the person who's going to do it. She's like our Nancy Drew. And in the end, hopefully we're going to know what happened. I don't necessarily think I know what happened, but I, you know, I have a few pretty good working theories at the end of this, thanks to the way that she reported it. I, I suppose it's, you know, a pretty good idea to come right out and say, uh, my goal here is to solve the murder or solve the mystery when a lot of different podcasts and TV shows don't quite come out and say that. Probably the only negative thing I would give to the podcast is if that's the goal then you're really setting yourself up for a disappointing ending. But this is an ongoing enterprise. I mean, I think that if the objective here is the victim's family's lawyer came to her with this case because they want a resolution. So everyone is pursuing the same truth, which is singular. Honestly, no other podcast we've listened to has that at the heart of it, maybe in the dark a little bit. But, you know, that was really Madeline's enterprise, like finding out what the police did wrong. You know, the more I listen to it, the more you realize that Jacob Wetterling's parents They aren't necessarily about finding more truth. It's about just sort of like reconciliation for them. This is a unique situation that she's in, right? Where the case was brought to her by the victim's parents. She's holding law enforcement to account. They have an acquitted suspect. We have somebody who was acquitted in a case, right? Right. Very, very different approaching an investigation here. And she's asking questions that I think aren't really answered very often. Like, what do you do when you have an acquittal? Yeah, I mean, sometimes people who are on trial for murder are acquitted because they didn't do it. And sometimes they're acquitted because they did it, but the prosecution couldn't prove it. So what ends up happening with the status of that case and that victim? Just because there's an acquittal, why does that become a cold case now? I mean, is there anybody out there looking for Nicole Brown Simpson's killer right now? Yeah. You know, so it's it's hard to say, okay, this is different because X. It's almost as if you have to get some kind of physical evidence that proves Bob is not the killer in the same way as if he were in jail at the same time. Because and there are still people in law enforcement who are like, no, we got the right guy. It almost reminds me of the Adnan Syed case in that mm-hmm. way. Like Adnan's in prison. So law enforcement and prosecutors are more able to say we got the right guy, period, and not do more, right? Right. This guy's not in prison. No. And he was he, found not guilty twice. Yeah, and if he had been convicted, I mean, a lot of like that evidence would have been held on to, would have been storage right. for an appeal. Right. It might be around today so that they could do different kinds of testing on it. Right. If in the police mind they got the right guy and just the, the prosecutor couldn't get the conviction, 
at what point do you stop? Is it incumbent upon the police every time they get somebody and these they're found not guilty to go and pursue some other angle that they don't believe exists? But I don't think the current police investigator working this case thinks they got the right guy. It was the previous right. one and mm-hmm. then the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. However, I, the evidence didn't match. Like It didn't match in any way. You can make a case with a nuns case, even if you have what some people believe to be like bullshit experts who put together a bullshit evidence. Like if you believe he's guilty, you're able to put together like what some might say would be like a bullshit trail to prove that he's guilty. Mm-hmm. Aside from the fact that there was this uh, false confession, which I know not everybody believes exists, except that it does. Like, there's <laughs> a lot of data that show that it does. Right. There's no evidence at all pointing to the fact that Bob committed this crime. Right. And, and the tidbits that are out there about these other suspects are really interesting. Right. I know there are three viable alternative suspects that investigators have talked about, that the, v- the VDOC Society talked about. And then there's a fourth that came up in the podcast that also, I think, has been pointed to by investigators. But we have RJ, the friend from high school who had the crush on Beth. We had Buzz, Beth's boss, the one who had the contentious conversation conversation mm-hmm. with Amber. We had Steve, the handyman, who she also interviewed. And then we have the dead guy, Boyd Glasscock, whose story is, I think, unsettling in a lot yeah, of ways. Inserted yeah. himself in the case. He's the one who brought Bob the pincushion pin covered with a mysterious red substance that Bob didn't think anything of at the time. What are your thoughts, Kevin, about the fact that we sort of learn about and actually hear from three-ish, maybe two, uh, Uh, potential suspects in this case. I thought that was great. I mean, I think having listened to three out of the four, but certainly like on paper, the two hottest leads, not including Glasscock, who's already passed away, it really changed the way I felt about either of them Mm -hmm. as a suspect. Now, it's very naive because the way they talk whether they have a nice personality or a bad personality doesn't necessarily make them a killer. You mean, are you talking about Buzz's bad personality? I'm, no, I'm not going to point out. <laughs> you, you you can draw your own opinion. <laughs> Being a grumpy pants maybe doesn't make you a more viable suspect. I agree with that completely. Uh, however, it does make you kind of, you know, wonder more about do I believe this or that? Laura, what did you think about the fact that we got to hear from I don't know. I kind of think that the fact that we actually got to hear from the three guys makes a difference. What are your feelings about that? That was when I was having my I can't stop listening because I wanted to hear from these guys. But I felt I have to say I felt a little uncomfortable when she was calling them to talk to them in the way that they were kind of leading in because it was like, well, I just kind of want to talk to you because of this case and your name came up. And then I don't want to say they were blindsided because they knew why she was calling, but it was I felt like a little bit awkward in terms of these three, four people definitely being put out there with their names, because usually names of suspects are not released in cases like this. That to me seemed kind of unusual, but it definitely, again, sort of set it up because each one that I'm listening to, I'm thinking, oh, this guy is totally the one who did it. And then I'm like, well, maybe not. Right. And then the next one, I'd have the same, oh, and then the guy who was like, what's your name again? That was Buzz Call, yeah. Yeah, that was the guy. You know, but each one I felt like had certain points to it that I was like, oh, like the bloody pincushion. That was strange. Yeah, he's he's no longer alive, so we can talk about him a little bit more than we have. Kevin, what did you think about that detail about the bloody pincushion? It's creepy. And it does, you know, if you talk about overkill, which is how Beth died with the strangulation and then all the stabbing. There would be some kind of passion behind that. And if it's not, I'm being jilted, 
It's I'm jealous. And it sounds like, from all accounts, that he had a crush on Bob. Maybe. All right. But but that seems to be some of what they're digging up. You know, I think that the, the profilers intimated that that kind of personality fits this crime. It sounds like the VDOC Society thought that he was the suspect. Toby's like suspiciously silent over there. I don't know if it's because he knows he's on video and he's shy. But Toby, what did you think of this part of the podcast? You know, I thought it was compelling. I have some of the same problems that Laura had with kind of naming these people. So many years later. But they're um, in all of the news accounts about the story. I mean, you can just look up the newspaper clippings and they're in them. I mean, these guys have all are all being looked at or have been looked at and they've all been but, written about. But in the 70s, right? I mean, this is 40 years ago. So there, there's that. There's quite a bit of insinuation about Glasscock, at least the way he's presented is that he was at that time or at least became fairly seriously mentally ill. You know, I think there's a tendency to take a look at people who are mentally ill and acting strangely and looking at that as being perhaps an indication of guilt. Right. When in fact, it's the indication of a troubled mind. I had that reservation. They all, the way they were all portrayed, every single one of them was like, it was like an Agatha Christie novel, right? It's right. like, it could be that guy. It could be that guy. The, the, he had a motive too, you know, he had opportunity. But in the end, there's no evidence for any of them. There's no reason why you would think any of them was more likely than Bob. I would think they were all more likely than Bob, at least it was yeah. three of the four of them. I, I don't think RJ, and I don't think she necessarily pointed to him, but it has come up that at some point he was looked at because of his you know, crush on Beth and because mm-hmm. of his continued belief that Bob is guilty or his uh, outward belief that Bob is guilty. I actually Which think is scary. It is a little bit strange. I mean, do we all agree, by the way, I should have said this. Do we all agree that Bob didn't do it? I, I don't yeah. think Bob did it. Just explain to me why that's kind of off the table. First of all, it's a stretch for me to believe he could have done it because the timing doesn't work out at all. The fact that he was the one who called the cops to report it, the fact that he didn't know anything about whether or not she had been like shot or stabbed even. You know, if it was a book. Right. Right. If it was fiction, that would totally be the way you would do it, though. You'd give a confession. Right. But it would be wrong. And then that would be the way that you'd get off. Oh Yeah. But if you had like just graduated from college and you were like 22 years old. I don't know. That's like quite the. I don't think in the, in the 1970s anybody would have given credence to a false confession. I'm not trying to make that case. Right. You know, right. I don't, it's not that I think Bob necessarily did it, but in the course of listening to the podcast, and I might have missed something, but you know, at the end, it didn't seem to me. I didn't feel like there was a very compelling case against any of them. So, Laura, can you just put your reservations aside for a second? Yeah. Were there any details about any of these guys? And you don't have to say whose name it is if you don't want to. But were any of the details about any of these guys and their involvement in the cases stick out to you insofar as it would make you want to take a closer look or hope that the police would interview one of these guys? Because I think that really is Amber and Amanda's game here, end game here, is they, they want the authorities to talk to the right people. They've said that over and over again. They said that to me. Are there any details that stuck out to you that would make you tell your friend who's a cop, hey, you should go talk to that guy? Yeah, I have to say I got stuck on, was it the boss that was supposedly hanging out with her? And then everybody was like, that's totally not something that she would have done. And he was friends with the cop. Yes. And he was friends with the cop. I mean, that one to me, like I was like, huh. And he was the one, if I recall, that got so confrontational with her also. Like to me, that's when I had like a big red flag when I was listening and I was like, ooh. 
that's interesting. And then I'm thinking, oh, and they've got the new cop on the case who's definitely taking it pretty seriously and he's very diligent. Um, So that was one scene that stuck out to me. It seemed odd, but it seemed also like, oh, well, that would explain why he said he was in the house because he had to explain why any fingerprints or whatever would have been there. So it was that they were hanging out. So that, to me, definitely was one of the things that kind of stood out. And the new detail about the phone down the street is also very interesting. There's a lot of things about that that stick out to me that are interesting. Again, you have to kind of draw your own conclusion as to what that means because it's an open case. It could mean anything. It could mean that he just wanted to have people think they had a better relationship than they actually had. It honestly could just be that. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) is it worse to be thought of as a killer or worse to be thought of as a creeper? Yeah, it's a strange detail, but you make of it what you will because we don't know, and the police haven't charged anybody. Now, I was saying before that I don't know how literally they were speaking of when they said that they're passing along tips to the authorities because, you know, when you talk about I want to solve the case— Suppose during one of those phone calls, somebody confesses. Well, Amber and Amanda aren't going to go down and do a citizen's arrest. That's right. You have to kind of wonder, like, realistically, again, what does that mean, solving the case? And as a reporter, you can't act as an agent for the government. Something you know a little bit about. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, the police can't have you acting as an agent for them. So, you know, this question came up during the jinx where they had evidence that show that uh, Robert Durst seemed to confess to the murders. And it was captured on audio months before the documentary came out. And there was criticism of, well, shouldn't they have contacted the police they right away? They could have. They certainly could have. They could have. But, you know, the professional code of conduct for journalists would be that you don't do that and that you run your story and you let the investigators... But do you wait... Eight months to run your yeah, story. Yeah, do you sit but on your story that long? That was the issue there. I, I'm not throwing Amanda and Amber under the bus, you know, as far as what their cooperation level is. And I'm not saying that I know that it's it's beyond, it's crossed some line it's or not, whatever. They're just waiting. But yeah, they're waiting, right. This is what we talked about in the interview. Maybe I cut part of this out so you didn't hear whole, the whole context. They know that they have reporting, that they've uncovered things that the police also know about. Mm-hmm. They don't want to become agents of the police. They don't want to do anything that could make them end up being a witness in court or have them know something that the police don't know and put themselves in that position or they're out in that position. And they also don't want to in any way interfere with that business. So they, I think, are walking the line very, very ethically. But they also know the police know some stuff that they also know. And they also know that they shouldn't do anything about it because the police might be doing something about it. Yeah. I mean, then there's also the other stuff. I mean, I, I, you know, know a detective on the cold case unit and we bullshit. And like he tells me things that, (laughs) you know, that like if I were to write about, you know, jam us both up. But it's just because reporters and cops, you know, talk. And that's how you uh, ingratiate yourself and create relationships. But I think that this is one of those cold cases that he would say, and I think the other things would say, there are cold cases that you know you could solve. Right. And I think in this case, Beth's murder is solvable. If only it becomes a cold case. If only it actually becomes a cold case, yeah. Toby, what did you think about the episode that focused on whether or not a serial killer could have committed this murder? I thought it was pretty weird. Um, (laughs) Seems like in a lot of these, that's kind of what gets sort of thrown out there as like an alternative theory. 
because that definitely did come up in the first season of Serial. And then there was that weird thing that was on the internet for a while about some like famed serial killer like potentially being in the background of a shot in the Manitowoc County Courthouse. That's right. He actually came up in this podcast, too, that it could have been him. Mm-hmm. So it seems like, well, if we can't solve it, maybe it was a serial killer. You know, I thought it was the point that they were making about how at that time and in that area, there was a lot of serial killers sort of active was kind of an interesting kind of historical thing, but how it fit in with the rest of what they were doing, that didn't seem to me to be sort of in keeping. That seemed like almost like the kind of thing you might, like if it was an article in a magazine, you might have a box. Right. That would say, you know, serial killers in the Midwest in the a 70s. sidebar, like a timeline yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. I think they did a good job with taking what seemed like an improbable hypothesis and explaining like it really could have happened. I think they did a good job with that. However, it came right after the If Not Bob episodes, right. which were so strong. So strong. That it just, you know, even though they did a good case and you're like, oh, well, I suppose, yeah, you know, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility a serial killer could have done it. It already had just had this masterpiece of. of Are you saying it was journal. anticlimactic? Uh, I, I think it was a denouement. I, no, I, I don't know if I'm actually saying that because I don't want to imply that it was a bad episode. I'm thinking it was actually very well done, and I think they had a tough job. You know, even if they, you didn't, you didn't have the stuff with you know these great interviews with these other potential suspects. You still would start off with a maybe it's a serial killer, and everybody rolls their eyes, but. You know, they laid out a good uh, argument for it in a way that still kept your attention. Now, Laura, I just want to talk to you real quickly about Moser with a G. (laughs) A G that's just as silent as he is. Oh, snap. Um, What did you think of her interactions with Moser's office? What did you think of the interaction she had with him when she was literally chasing him through a building? What do you think of the fact that he won't even say no comment to this crime reporter at the Cincinnati Inquirer. This is absurd. I, I want to go like smack this guy. I mean, I'm just like, what is his problem? But that that was my favorite scene. I loved when, because this whole time we're listening and he still won't comment and still won't comment. And you hear these messages where she's like, well, he's in a meeting. And she's like, well, do you know when he'll be out? No, I really can't say. And you're like getting more and more irritated. So there was a great sense of satisfaction to me when she finally, you know, got him and we heard his voice. And for some reason, I just had like Boss Hog from the Dukes of Hazard in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I felt like, I mean, when she said, when you were speaking with her, that somebody else at the newspaper is going to follow up on that. That's something that I would like to see what, if anything, comes of that. Because that guy's an elected official. That was ridiculous. What did you think of that, Kevin? Well, I mean, I think I I was actually grateful that they explained why he may be holding a grudge. Against the paper. Against the paper. That doesn't matter, though. Well, no, but it explains why you're, you're being petulant about right. it. And and it was like at the end of, of episode seven where she actually goes or they actually go to the office. I'm in my head like screaming like sit in a chair. Wait, 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 wait. You know, do the Woodward and Bernstein thing and sit there and wait him out. And when that didn't happen, I'm like, wait, isn't he a prosecutor? Isn't there like a doesn't have to be in court at any time? Doesn't have to be out of the building? Can't you confront him then? And sure enough, it's, and they go ahead and do that. I'm like, yes. Because I'm also wondering why perhaps, I think it sounded like that some of the production help they got was from somebody from public radio. Just for the mixing. For that the mixing. It, yeah. I was like, why can't, you know, I'm thinking, can't you have a friend, another colleague at another outlet, like 
try to like broach the subject. Like he's gonna t- if he's not gonna take your calls, maybe he'll take somebody else's. Now I just no, but he deserved to get a come, and I would have been way worse at the elevator. Yeah, I would have given him every tough question. But here's the thing that I I just want to get your reaction to because you know I work in a newsroom now, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of politics going on right now. And as you know from like the stories I tell you when I come home from work, like sometimes people are pissed off at like some story we wrote, right? Like they don't think that we were accurate or whatever, but we always oh, were, by yeah, the way. Yeah, that's not a new thing. It's not a new thing. <laughs> they still do have to take your call the next time. They do. And even if they're going to be jerks or reticent to talk, if you give someone the opportunity to say no comment and they don't, and they also won't let you make an appointment, and they also just will say, I'm not talking... What is that? You're you're inviting belligerent coverage. If you can't act like a professional, you're you're just inviting that kind of retaliatory coverage. It's, it sounds like they're staying on the up and up. You know, they're not really doing anything. You know, they're not investigating his finances just for the fun of it. it with any organization, you know, I'm in public relations, and you, you work with relationships of, with the media are important, right? Relationships with the media are important, even if you disagree with the story, even if you hate them, you, even if you hate them, even if you feel like <laughs> over and over again they're getting it wrong. You can't control how reporters write the story. You can only control your message, right? And you know, if you just want to say no comment. And you know this is the kind of thing too, where you could everybody else is just saying it's an open investigation, no comment, or right. I don't know anything about it, no comment. Yeah, so no, he I'm just saying, comes off as a straight, transparent jerk. Yeah, I'm not trying to give him an, an out. I'm I'm just saying that by doing that, he's inviting more poor coverage. Right now, I don't mm-hmm. know what his Twitter feed is like <laughs> these days. All these people like, hear the uh, way he treats you. Know, you know, it's kind of like well, you reap what you sow. Right. So reporters get that vindictive. That some, do. some somebody big times you and you're just like, I'm going to screw this guy. Well, you're not screwing him. You're just saying what happened. So there, there's a difference yeah. between saying yeah. somebody is a jerk and was a jerk to me or saying this is a public official who is obligated to speak to the media. It won't even say no comment. That actually yeah. is a story. That actually is. That's not screwing him. You're just saying what happened. I mean, I think. Papers and news organizations think that the public is more interested in that than they actually are. I'll tell you, a podcast audience is interested in that in a way that a newspaper audience is not. I mean, if you look at what's happened to the prosecution or the sort of people who aren't seen to be transparent in other like justice like Mm -hmm. podcasts and making a murderer, this audience who's listening to this show is very interested in the fact that this guy won't even say no comment to this reporter. I have a hard time believing that if he knew that people were going to be listening to seven hours of this case and the effect that it had on people and and all this stuff, and then the last bit of it was going to be him just being a jerk and acting, you know, fairly unprofessionally. You know, if if that had been the setup for him, he'd known that, I assume he would say something. Toby, there was a person there with a microphone. It wasn't just her with a notepad. And no, 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 I understand that. But she gave him so many opportunities. I'm not I'm not trying to give him like a break, but I think his calculus on that would have been different if he'd known that this was going to be this big podcast instead of just. But you know what? He must have known because you know that the prosecutors and the cops and all the people involved in this case, they all talk to each other. Yep. So I'm sure he knew from that nice detective that was working on the case that she was talking to. I don't believe he didn't know what this was. It's just very troubling to me that somebody in that position would go to such lengths not to speak. 
and to pretend like he doesn't know what's going on. They all talk. It's funny how we have a case of an, an unsolved murder of a woman and several viable suspects, and we have so much more animus for the district attorney <laughs> because he was a douchebag. I really do. By the way, Buzz Call has every right to not talk to her. That's his right, mm -hmm. right? Sure. He did talk to her and he was like kind of jerky or whatever, but that is his right. He's a private citizen. It is your right to not speak to a reporter if you don't want to. It is mm -hmm. your right as a private citizen. It's not your right to do that if you are a public official. Well. Yeah, it might be. You mm -hmm. might. Yeah. You know what, though? It is their job. They're doing their job. And, you know, you can say accountability is like, I don't get reelected or whatever. That's fine. You might not get reelected. But like everybody who's run for office ever knows that you can do so much damage in the time that you're mm -hmm. in office that you really do have to at least put on a show of being accountable, even if you're not actually yeah. being accountable. I would just say, and maybe we should like move on, but media outlets have long memories. I don't know. It sounds like he's been there for quite a long time, and I don't know how many more years he has in the public or the private sector, but if there comes a time where something newsworthy happens, where he could be painted in a negative light, it's likely that there's a little more zeal put into that investigation by a reporter than otherwise. That was my question from before. Is like, is there really going to be this vindictiveness? You're more likely to believe a negative story about that person as a reporter. So yeah. I'll tell you, you know, sometimes you get tips in a newsroom about malfeasance or somebody being a jerk or somebody mistreating people. And you don't really pay a lot of attention to those tips unless you see a pattern he is giving her the pattern. Like he's giving not just her, but also the whole Inquirer staff and now a podcast audience of millions of people a pattern to point to that he's difficult. But if, if you're a DN, you have a good relationship with different reporters. A reporter may call you up and say, hey, you're about to arrest John Smith on this thing. What can you tell me? Now, if you've got a good reporter, you could say, Rebecca, can I talk to you off the record for a sec? Right. Look, we don't have the arrest warrant on this yet. Can you sit on this for 24 hours? I will call you as soon as we make the arrest. Right. And you probably will go, yeah, because then I'm going to get something. And this is how you get a good relationship going. But, you know, in this case, if he really would like to stop you for 24 hours, can you do me a solid here? Nope. Because, no, nope, boom. <laughs> right. Well, We're running the story. I'm running the story. <laughs> You can and comment or not. Yeah. It's not good practice. Well, it know, makes me want to fight the man. That's what it makes me want to do. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I'm fighting the man. I'm, I'm ready. I'm going to Ohio. We do need to move on. I mean, I do think that we're going to talk about this more. I think there is going to be more accused. I think that when they have more material, they are going to release more content. At least that's the signal that I received from uh, Amber and Amanda. But they're going to wait until they have enough to mm -hmm. have it be something good. But I would love your guys, you know, sort of final thoughts. You know, we've had eight episodes so far. I want to know. If you're interested, if you're going to listen to more content, and if you want to assign that, I don't know, a letter grade, that would be really great. Kevin, what do you think? I'm giving it an A minus. Okay, why? Oh, I think it was great. I, f I feel like you know my grading on the curve was has been all over the place, and I actually feel bad for giving Laura Lippman a B plus because I think the book was better. But um, <laughs> yeah, I you know I'm going to give it out of 100. I'm going to give it a 94. Is that an A minus? That's an A. That's an A. Yeah. Okay. That's it's an, an okay. A plus. It's an A. That's yeah. An a solid A. Yeah. It's not perfect, but it held my attention, and it was a great case, and it was presented very well, and it makes me want to hear how it really ends. So you're going to listen to more? If there's more comes out, I'm definitely listening. What about you, Toby? Yeah, I'd give it an A. Nice. I'd, I'd listen to it. I mean, I think, again, as I've said before, I think we've kind of reached the maturity of these podcasts. And so we're starting to get really good ones. 
you know, I don't find much to credit. Although I did find <laughs> talk about things that I was critical <laughs> of. I mean, I think it's again, it's it's just it's nitpicking at what is basically just an extremely solid piece of work. What about you, Laura? I'll go for A minus because I feel like um, even though there's always room for improvement, I really liked it. I liked the way that the story was told. I liked the people that were telling the story, the details of the story. I also really liked the use of the little subtle background music while she was talking and narrating. I, I really liked it. I think out of all of the podcasts that we've listened to that were like searching for that next serial, there's been a couple that have come pretty close. I think this one might be the closest in terms of the type of content and the way it was told and the production value. I agree with you. And I'm going to give it an A for the same reason. I also think that their singular point of view, the fact that they had the family, the fact that they had Bob, the fact that she interviewed all three living potential suspects. We're not talking about people. We're talking to people. The transparency and reporting, I just love the way it was put together. And I felt this way before I talked to Amber. Very often I tend to like things more after I meet the person who made them, but I actually liked it a lot before I talked to her. So uh, I'm very comfortable with my A. Now, before we move on, uh, I'm not going to be Kevin and be super clever here, but Laura, I actually have something to tell you about. And okay, tell this, me about it. Toby, you and I are going to go in the corner. Yeah, okay? this is actually, this is girl talk time. I'm going to check in on the socks. Yeah, what is, what's this? You got to tell me what the score is. We actually <laughs> have a new sponsor that Laura, I think, is very timely for you because you're doing this okay. like weird fitness challenge situation. Yes. And we all know that we hear from other sponsors who, you know, send us food and it's all about sort of like gourmet eating and you're sort of just like, oh, that's really great. But at the same time, I'm trying to slim down and sort of be healthy. We actually have a sponsor I think you're going to be very interested in. It's called Preptish. Preptish is actually a healthy subscription-based meal planning service. When you sign up, you receive an email every week that has a grocery list and instructions for prepping meals ahead of time. So basically you spend like... Uh, an hour or two on Sunday, Saturday or Sunday, you go grocery shopping, you get all your ingredients, and then you spend like an hour or two in the kitchen, like chopping things, making sauces, etc. And then you can have a week's worth of like paleo dinners, or a week's worth of like gluten free dinners, like the kind of stuff that I saw you tweet the other day about looking up some sort of like weird chocolate cocoa <laughs> ball thing. And you're like, oh, sourcing yeah. it. Now, imagine imagine you have like a registered dietitian who's already figured all that out. Like, here's all the stuff you're going to eat this week so that you can eat healthy. Here's all the stuff you need to buy to make all those things. Here's all the directions for how to sort of prep it at the beginning of the week. And then every night you just throw together your little healthy meal. That's what prep dish is. What do you think that's of that? That's exciting. I think that's pretty good because, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is for me as I'm trying to actually be healthy. And um, I was reading the eating like the raw cocoa or raw cacao, however you say it. <laughs> cacao. Which is supposed whatever it is. <laughs> it supposedly has the euphoria gene in it. And I, I didn't feel any euphoria. So maybe this nutritionist could have told me the truth about that before I spent all the money on it. But, you know, I think for me, having everything when I go and I get in a good routine and it's like Sunday and I'm organized for the week and everything's ready in the refrigerator, I feel like, okay, that's one thing off my plate and I know I'm going to eat healthy for the week. So I think that's something I would be very interested in. Well, I will hook you up with some prep dish recipes and shopping lists because I got them and I will pass them on to you. Now, Kevin, I have a question for you. Sure. When I told you we were eating paleo lasagna for dinner that night, <laughs> what did you think when I told you that and then what did you think after you ate it? Uh, I thought that uh, it was going to be like a brontosaurus burger. <laughs> from the Flintstones. I think you thought it's going to be like a bullshit lasagna. It's not going to be lasagna at all, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
But no, actually, it, it, it was very good. Bas- essentially, it was like a, a lasagna, but instead of the pasta noodles, it was, was it squash? It was or? thinly sliced eggplant, eggplant and zucchini. So basically, yeah. it was like a delicious oh, Parmesan. Yeah, it had. I've done that before. Yeah, it was a really great meal. And I, yeah, I was really surprised that I liked it because I thought, paleo? What is that even about? My son, who's 13, ate all those damn paleo brownies, like inhaled them. Mm-hmm, he did. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Laura, uh, so the company is called Preptish. You can find them out at preptish.com. And for our listeners, you can go to the landing page, preptish.com slash crime writer for a special offer. That's preptish.com slash crime writer to one. check it out. You can save Just time. Just one writer? Crime writer. You can save time, be efficient, eat healthy, have stress-free, tasty meals you just do a little bit of work for. You're eating healthy all week long. And it's kind of like you're a celebrity getting someone to like do all that for you, except you get to do it for yourself. And uh, it's pretty awesome. Preptish.com slash crime writer. Crime writer. Crime writer. Crime writer. Right. All right. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the the week. week. A 102-year-old Missouri woman named Edie Sims was handcuffed and placed in the back of a police cruiser last week. But it wasn't because she committed a crime, but because being arrested was on Edie's bucket list. (laughs) According to KLPR in St. Louis, Sims was cheerfully escorted to St. Louis five-star senior center like a perp with accompanying police officers that said they couldn't have been happier to help. It was all fun and games till the strip search. <laughs> Edie's oh. wish was <laughs> Edie's wish was apparently granted because she's been selflessly donating items to the senior center for years, including eyeglass cases, pillows, scarves, and walker bags, all made by hand. Oh, you, know, you can make bags for walkers. I had no idea there was such a thing. But Must Edie, be a really big bag. Edie's been making them to show Those their bags pres- that go on walkers. Exactly, they yeah. go on walkers. You don't put your walker. I feel like bag. if you're going on vacation. Thank you for explaining that. Make a that. bags for your skis. I didn't get it. Now I do. Now, now I feel like it. an idiot. To show their appreciation, of course the Senior Center's members wanted to do something special in return, so why not handcuff the old lady and throw her in the back <laughs> of a cop car? Just handcuff her and <laughs> spank her a little bit. Way to make it Wait. gross. <laughs> Hold on a second. That's, that didn't happen. <laughs> you sure that wasn't on her bucket it list? It wasn't, ready? Okay. Was, it, was it one of those furry handcuffs? That no, it was not. No, it was not. <laughs> right. We love it and we get more out of it than the seniors do, Police Sergeant John McLaughlin told a KPLR reporter. <laughs> And as for Sims, apparently she loved it, too, because while riding in the back of the police car, she'd lift up her hands to show everyone they passed that she was wearing handcuffs, smiling ear to ear the entire time. (laughs) People are going, what did she get arrested for? Why is she so happy? So here's the question. Assuming that getting arrested isn't the number one thing on your bucket list, Laura, what is something that you would like to do before you turn 103? Oh, boy. You know what? I, I hope you're all sitting down for this one. I'm going to go on a cattle roundup. Woo. Wow. <laughs> you're going to get a hat, too? And Yeah, I'd like to go on a cattle roundup. I think that would be a lot of fun. Well, you know how to ride a horse already, so there you have that yeah. going for you. So you're going to go to one of um, those but- like fancy ranches like in Montana where they like put you up in a cabin and someone comes in in the morning and like starts a little fire for you and they take you yeah. out all day on the trail. That's my game plan. You know, definitely. Because, you know, I have, I, I don't want to say I've been arrested. I was taken into police custody once. So I've already crossed that off my bucket list. So I don't need to wait to be 103 for that to happen. Whoa. That's something we have to talk about <laughs> next podcast. What about you, Toby? What's on your bucket list? Well, I had this whole thing about like how I wanted to go on the Amazon. And then I was going to say, well, you know how I was going to get there. You go on the Amazon the every week. Writers, when you... <laughs> the crime writers portal. Um, but that's not actually true. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of like kind of cool places 
that would be fun to visit, like Angkor Wat or, you know, Machu Picchu or something. So you want to be where in the world is Matt Lauer? That's what's on your bucket list. <laughs> Matt Lauer? Where in the world, where is, in the Toby world Ball? is Toby Ball? That's great. <laughs> Kevin, what is on your bucket list? Um, I don't know if this like, bucket list is something like that you do, but I would like to have this experience in my life, which would be to see one of my books made into a movie and visit the set. Really? I'd love to visit the set, hang out at craft services. Craft services is, is the food table. Yes, by the way. we know. And, you know, meet the people who are bringing the characters to life. And uh, I think that would be kind of neat. Sit in one of those big director's chairs with the your name on the back. Big director's chair and just watch <laughs> like 100 people being employed, running around, making a crappy movie of the week. I think you should aim higher. I think it's Scorsese or Yeah, Christopher Nolan. you like trying to give him advice about stuff. I'm trying to be humble about this. <laughs> I think you should aim for Christopher Nolan and that on your bucket list should be to have a fight with Christian Bale on set. That should be what you're I mean, aim his for. his hair light? Exactly, yeah, okay. exactly. Well, my bucket list item is to sit in the closet with my husband while he gives me a piece of his mind not wearing pants. That is my bucket <laughs> That's list That's like item. every week, except for this one. I do have my pants on. I know, so. congratulations. Yes. We're all very, very proud. So we should probably wrap it up on that note. Laura Bricker, you're on the Twitter, correct? I am always on the Twitter. It's at Laura Bricker. Thank you so much for coming back to do this again with us, Laura. It wouldn't be the same without you. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. And Toby, how can our listeners find you on the Twitter? At TobyBallNH. And Kevin Flynn, if people want to tweet to you, how can they do that? I'm sorry, I'm just still distracted by the video of Toby. His leg? His leg. <laughs> his hairy leg. <laughs> And he's wearing shorts, so you can... Oh, no, tell me, don't move your... Oh, my God! No! (laughs) I cannot unsee his boxer shorts when he stretched his leg out. I didn't see that. I just saw his slippers. I'm sorry, he has bat wings, if you know what I mean. And guess what, guys? He does not use the Harry's razors on his leg. No. We know that for sure. My God. So, Kevin, what's your Twitter handle? I am getting off Twitter after this, but for the meantime, I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at... Reb Lavoy. You can also find me at Reb Lavoy on Instagram. Our show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. Send us a tweet or send us a voice memo. Just record it on your smartphone and email crimewriterson at gmail.com. Head over to our website. It's crimewriterson.com. There you can sign up for our newsletter, buy lots of stuff using our Amazon link, and check out our other show, These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order podcast. And do you love this show? Do you really love it? Then show it. Leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Those things really do matter when it comes to staying on the podcast charts. Our line producer is Henry Lavoy. He's very handsome, by the way. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show is recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the studio we built in a closet in our basement, a.k.a. Kevin's favorite room in which to strip down to his skivvies and give me a piece of his mind. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Amber, is your microphone working? Do you need a battery? Is it on? (laughs) She's gone. I'm sure you do a really good Amber impression at this point, right? (laughs) I don't know about that.
partners in crime media. ModCloth is your go-to spot for fashion as unique as you. They feature a broad range of styles from the understated to the adventurous, the classic to the contemporary, the retro to the right now. At ModCloth, you'll find anything but ordinary dresses, tops, bottoms, shoes, bridal styles, outerwear, and decor. They even carry books, journals, and office accessories perfect for lit lovers. Go to M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H dot com and enter promo code CRIME at checkout to get $20 off an order of $100 or more. Make every day extraordinary with Mod Cloth. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.